This call is being recorded. <laughs> I still can't get over that voice that cracks me up every time. This call is being recorded. I feel like I just, I just, I just called. I'm, I'm on, the, I'm online with American Express or something. <laughs> You're on hold with the cable company. <laughs> Please hold. We will get back to you in four point six hours. Maybe. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of The Side Hustle here with Jimmy and two Anges, or in this case, an Angela and one that we will refer to as Jules. To avoid any confusion out there, today we have Dane Heron in the house out of uh, Southern California. Now, if you've ever watched a freestyle motocross competition anytime within the last two decades, chances are you've heard that name before because, Dane, well, you've been the guy behind the uh, idea of designing and building the course. But uh, a lot of people don't know this about you. You're actually a man of many hats. It's not just course building. You're actually uh, a rider yourself, uh, a photographer. You actually uh, work for Red Bull in the sports marketing department for many, many years. Uh, how in the world did you get started on this path? Take us to the very, very beginning stages of how this all came to be for you. Yeah, man, it's been a long road. It was, uh, you know, late, the late nineties, I think around 98, 99 is kind of when I got started. I, uh, I really owe all of this introduction to me and to all this to, uh, to two of, uh, two of the biggest freestyle names and, uh, you know, from back in the day from Jeff Tilton and, uh, Tommy Clowers, man, him and I were roommates for years, um, growing up riding and, you know, just doing our thing and the freestyle motocross thing kind of started and we were all living together and Mickey diamond was building the kind of building the courses. You know, Mickey was one of the best riders around, but maybe he didn't, you know, didn't have the equipment ability or, you know, wasn't the greatest on equipment, but you know, he certainly knew it he was doing and uh you know jeff and tommy kind of knew test stool and uh, the guys from lxd um, productions at the time and man that's really how it got started we were all hanging out and the freestyle thing kicked off and those guys kind of threw my name into the hat in terms of uh you know that i would be a good one to build and design these courses and you know, i had all this construction experience i grew up in the construction business and uh and I raced and rode dirt bikes my whole life as well. So, man, it just was kind of a perfect little mix, man. And those two guys got me involved, and the rest is history. So speaking of history, let's dive into that a little bit for a lot of people that may not know sort of the, the kind of birth of the freestyle motocross era was kind of that mid to late nineties. And it was kind of like when that, when, when the tricks started to evolve and whatnot, and that sport started to take off, it was kind of like the wild, wild West back then. And there were no rules, which was part of the, the allure of that whole thing. It was pretty crazy. Let's talk about some of those early days and what that was like for you, uh, the other competitors and as well as uh, just the early events that happened back then. Yeah, man, all I can say is the, the early days of the freestyle were a blast. They were a freaking blast. They were a lot of good people, a lot of people trying to make names for themselves. You know, there was a lot of novelty to it because it was new. And, you know, everybody that worked on the crew was just excited to be there. It was, you know, good people, good times. And uh, and it was a lot of fun. We, we there, there definitely weren't rules in terms of what we did and what we didn't do we kind of, uh, you know, it was new. So we kind of paved, everybody kind of paved their own path, man. And, you know, we were uh, having fun in the evenings. We would all get together and, you know, go to bars and drink beer and have a good time. And, you know, I, I, uh, 
it was uh it was as fun as you could possibly imagine it was it was work but uh but a dang good time and we were getting to travel the country you know and seeing uh seeing lots of different places but it was definitely a good time lots of good people it was lots of uh of work but uh it was nice to be a part of it man it was really cool and it was pretty wild. I mean, 1999 was the first year that they held uh, freestyle motocross at the X Games, and it was just absolute insanity. I mean, for starters, to have all of that event put down there on a pier, right there on the city front, like that. But I mean, it was just it was it was so different, and it was it was so loud. And I mean, you had guys coming out there that were you know wearing spiked shoulder protectors and whatnot, and it was just sort of like there were so many characters that came out in those early days. Yeah, man, it, that's what it was. It was, you know, each each one of the guys was was different, you know, like any sport that you watch, you know, like, you know, maybe not so much in NASCAR, but you know, there's everybody's got their own personalities, and like, it was fun. We just everybody got to be their own selves and do their own thing, and man, it was awesome. It was, and it happened so fast. It was like, you know, the freestyle thing kicked off so fast. And the events, you know, thing you know, popped off so quick and it was, uh, it just happened so fast. We, you know, I got the phone call to, to build an event in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. It was a qualifier for X Games. Um, you know, we did that. And then, then my second event was, um, was X Games on the pier in San Francisco. So I went straight from, hey, you want to try this out to, hey, you're going to build the biggest course in, uh, you know, in the freestyle in freestyle history at the time and uh it was awesome man it was really really fun the guys are really cool and we did a lot of things we probably can't talk about but uh we had fun <laughs> it was insane so in those early days uh the courses were obviously a lot bigger i mean space definitely wasn't an issue and Back in the early 2000s, late 90s, the courses were massive. What kind of time frame were you and your crew looking at to build something, especially, for example, in San Francisco? I mean, not only are you building this massive course, but you're also dealing with the logistics of being in the city. How hard was that to end up getting equipment and getting dirt trucked into the city center like that? What kind of a time frame were you guys looking at to be there to make that course uh, come together to hold an event? Well, in the beginning, like, you know, San Francisco, as an example, you know, that one, I wasn't a big part of the actual, you know, planning phases of it. I came in, they they invited me to that project so late in the game. I wasn't a big part of all of that in, install. That was more or less, hey, we already got all this stuff going on. Can you help us do this? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. Um, but that one in particular was, you know, about, a, I would say about a month-long process in terms of building because that particular one, being on the, being on the pier, um, there was weight loads and, and issues with, you know, you know, big piles of dirt weighing too much in, in small spaces. Everything was built out of foam underneath, which a lot of people don't know, but we stacked up foam and, uh, and sort of covered the, uh, covered the foam with the dirt surfaces and made like a little veneer of dirt on top of all of it so that it wouldn't be as heavy, but, you know, and money, money wasn't as much of an object back then because it was so new and so hot and so popular that, you know, they wanted the biggest and best no matter what it cost. And um, as a result, you, you know, as you can see years ago, the courses were quite, like you said, quite a bit more massive and, and uh, yeah, it took quite a, quite a bit longer to build because uh, everybody wanted the best. Yeah. That's been kind of the, 
the downfall over the years is like when it was brand spanking new on the scene, money was no object and there were sponsors galore. But uh, over the years, things have kind of gotten a little tight in different event budgets and whatnot. And we've seen the courses get smaller and uh, several events have, uh, you know, trimmed down and they've done away with certain things. So you, you've got to get crafty because you've got budgetary issues, but then you're also working in some areas where you've got to try to, put a course in and you've got to try to make it work in a tight, tight space. And it's not just that you're working against the, against the budget, but then you're also trying to make something that the riders are going to be happy about that. They're not going to get out there and complain about. That's actually going to be able, that's going to be conducive for them to go out and put on a good event. Yeah, no, you're, that's exactly right. Like, you know, years ago I would, you know, they would give me a space. I would put up a design. It would just, you know, ask for more, you know, like, is that enough? I'm like, yeah, well, I can do more, you know, so we would add a little bit more here and there. And like you said, as, as it's kind of like a, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like a commercialization, I think is really the, the best way I can explain it, you know, and as things develop, as a corporation develops, everybody starts going, okay, well, wait a minute, we got seven events to do. How can we save money? And da, 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 da. And it's just a sort of snowball effect in terms of, finances and stuff that sort of caused some of that but uh but no man it, it was um you know when you they get given a space you have to do what you can with it and uh i was always the one fighting for more space and fighting for more things for the riders because i was always you know a rider first and uh you know getting feedback from those guys was always like once they saw a design i was like well wait a minute man we could do this and we could do that and so we, you know, start initial design, change a few things and adjust some things, but, you know, you have to make do with what you got. And uh, I spent my, uh, most of my life doing that in, in, uh, in spaces where you wouldn't think you could do something, um, you know, make, make, make it happen. It's worked out good for the most part. I think the guys have had a good time and it's unfortunate there's not a lot happening with it nowadays, but, uh, but we loved it, man. It's been awesome. Those first couple of years, we were talking about X Games. In 99, you were outside in San Francisco. Then the Philadelphia years, uh, the freestyle course was also outside, so there was massive space there. Then you start moving to the Los Angeles years, and that's where things started to get a little bit challenging. And a lot of people don't think about this. Is you're taking something that was outside in a big level parking lot for the most part, and then you're now condensing it, and you're putting it inside basically an NHL, NBA arena. And it's not just that you're trying to put a freestyle motocross course inside there. You've got to move some things around because it wasn't just freestyle moto in those early years out there in LA. It was also, you had the mega ramp in there to accommodate the skaters and the BMXers as well. Let's talk about some of the challenges around that and what it was like to try to sit out. I mean, what kind of computer programs are you going through? Obviously with the CAD drawings and whatnot, like how much time do you have to put in to try to, look into things like taking seats out and the run-ins from the, uh, from the tunnels and whatnot to put a freestyle course inside a building that small. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the biggest thing, but the, 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 the real initial change in all that, when it started, you know, when it changed from just freestyle motocross to adding the other events like supermoto, supercross, all that stuff was, I, I think around 2000 and I don't know, maybe it was six or seven, maybe even 2008 is when, and we added freestyle, or move, sorry, we added uh, supermoto and started adding these other elements. And then, um, and then, uh, you know, as it progressed, we started adding like the skate elements into the same into the same uh, footprint, which was which was absolutely crazy. Um, I think the first time we had to add the different events, 
um, was in San Diego on ESPN did the uh, the Moto X championships there, the Navy Moto X championships in in, uh, in Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego. Is that 2008? Yep. Yeah. So that that was when the shift started. That's when the work really began because you know we would take a space like that and just you know before we'd have just freestyle motocross and now i had to add five different events big air best trick supermoto supercross and then uh rally as well so here's this venue that you know we have to add all these events to and they all have to operate concurrently and one right after another um and then you know in all that we have to add practice we have to add qualifying um so Basically, when we were building with these things, it just would be a nonstop process. It would be a month, month and a half process of building these things and getting them up. And then once practice started, it was nonstop. And we had a crew of like 10 or 11 guys that were there for five, six days nonstop, doing shifts, working all night, you know, getting tracks, getting the, the tracks and services ready for the next day. And then, uh, you know, when we added Rally to the mix, Rally kind of needed – its own space so we would actually have to convert the entire surface of those stadium floors overnight we'd start at five six o'clock when you know maybe eight o'clock when freestyle motocross ended and completely demolish the whole place regrade everything knock all the jumps down reshape everything build the rally jump all the corners turns everything all by eight o'clock the next morning (laughs) so it was absolutely freaking nuts i'll tell you that much i mean there those were where all my sleepless nights came from i can assure you that <laughs> so on that same front or on that same topic i guess i should say let's talk about red bull x fighters because not only have you had to have some challenge or had some challenging venues to try to work around on top of that you now also factor international travel into the mix so it's one thing trying to get equipment and stuff here in the u.s but What's it like when you end up in a foreign country and you not only you've got the language barrier, but then you're trying to secure things that you need, like the heavy equipment, fuel, and the dirt and whatnot, and just talk about some of the prep that goes into that and some of the uh, the hurdles you have to jump over to make that happen. Well, I'm going to preface this particular conversation with this comment, this joke that we all have in the events business that uh, people always tell us, man, you guys travel the world. You guys must have the best job in the world. And we all kind of giggle and laugh about it, that we do have the best job in the world, but it's not easy when you go somewhere else. When you go to another country, it's actually really, really difficult to manage. It's, um, you know, the X-Fighters in particular, you know, being in six, seven different countries in one year um, and trying to do the same large um, build-out and uh, an event in those different countries. Everyone has their own challenges. I can tell you right now, Japan was one of the one of the best places I've ever gone to work. Um, you know, those the local people there are, are very knowledgeable and they love what they do. They're really nice people. And uh, on the opposite note, one of the worst places I've ever been in the world to work is uh, is the United Arab Emirates. You know, Abu Dhabi, Dubai. Um, those have been some of the most difficult places in the world to work. You know, you. Uh, one particular story is, you know, we I would provide an equipment list to these guys, to the local teams um, at Red Bull that were putting on the events or the local production teams. 
you know, I would supply them with, um, you know, my dirt needs and equipment needs, and I, I would supply a list, an actual list with photographs of the, the specific equipment I needed. And uh, my first year in Dubai, I asked for a D6 dozer. Um, if anybody in the equipment business understands that a D6 dozer is a Caterpillar dozer, <laughs> and uh, these guys showed up with this dozer that was from the 1970s, and they had printed a sticker that said D6. It was an old Komatsu dozer. And uh, if I could show you pictures of the smoke that this thing poured out of its exhaust pipe when we started the thing, it would just blow your mind. And uh, we deal with that every day. And not to mention, you know, a place like that, it's 116 degrees out, and you're out trying to uh, you know, sit in equipment. And, you know, there's lots of challenges, man. I could sit here all day and tell you about so many different things, and it's just, it's been crazy. It's been a lot of fun, but it's been crazy. There's uh, nothing easy about doing a project away from home. Yeah, I, that's one of the things that I experience a lot with people too it's talking about the international travel and they're like oh man that must be great you guys get to go to all these places and it's like yeah but when you go on your vacation and you go once a year and you come home and you regroup try doing that six seven eight times a year but you're not actually on vacation you're actually working and you're working 12 to 14 hour days and i was one of those people i didn't really actually realize it till i jumped on with you guys on red bull x fighters and i was helping out with tess and jules behind the scenes and doing the uh, judges manager job and then i saw firsthand i was like oh man you guys are going non-stop especially poor jules that girl's on a 22-hour travel day flying to wherever we're going and then she gets off the plane and her phone's just blowing up <laughs> you're you're problem solving before you even get your luggage jules non-stop non-stop yes but i loved every minute of it i'll say this like every minute of it you guys could probably all attest to it, but the early the early years when, when the Red Bull X fighters started, those were actually some of the best and funnest events that I could possibly have ever been a part of. Um, you know, when it was new and fresh and exciting, you know, part of the experience that Red Bull wanted to provide was that the local teams were really responsible for taking, you know, really wanted to take care of the events and production team and the athletes and the riders and the people involved to really experience local culture. And it was really freaking awesome when we first started that. You know, we'd go to the different countries, and they'd always have dinner set up and, you know, just little local things. And it was just so much fun. And it was uh, it was really something to be a part of, and it was a lot of fun. That is one of the things that's super awesome about that particular event and with Red Bull, just the team dinners and the way that they just roll out the red carpet and not just kind of immersing all of us into their local culture, but the way that they kind of tailor the event to sort of speak to that. Uh, everything from just the, the way that they do their their show open to the design of the, uh, the signage and whatnot, just the whole theme of all that. Those guys really go all out. So out of all the nonsense that we've ever had to go through or that I've had to see you guys go through over the years, at, at the end of it all, once the lights were on and the music was going and those guys came flying out of the tunnel or athlete staging area or wherever we were, it all just, no matter how bad that week was or for you guys, the month was, all this, it made all of that worth it for that three hours that night while the show was going on, at least in my mind. No, it does the same for me, dude. Like, I've been doing this stuff, like I said, since, you know, the mid-90s, and you've been involved in events longer than I have. But um, even now to this day, you know, 
we do all that stuff like you said we work all day we work all week all month get it all ready and we sweat and we cuss and we you know we're pissed off about this or that or the other but we get it done and then it's like you said as soon as the lights come on and we all have our headsets on and dudes are riding it's like you know i still to this day you know the hair stands up my arm i get that you know good chill that little you know chilly feeling and it, it's awesome man yeah same once once that gets once that kicks in you get into event mode i, I still i get the goosebumps same as i did back in the early night or late 90s and that hasn't changed at all since you brought up uh oppressive heat when you were talking about the emirates i'm going to bring up uh two events in particular just because it goes into the uh sort of under the 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 challenges portion uh of the job i was going to bring up the two years that we did red bull x fighters in fort worth texas not only was it super super hot both years there i mean more oppressively hot than normal that time of year around here but the second year uh had a little bit of weather come in it wasn't actually a tornado they called it a microburst but then actually had a giant was it a telephone pole what was it? something came crashing down and actually ended up on the course and took out part of a fence at the uh at the stockyards there that second year yeah it was actually one of the one of the large scaffolding lighting towers that actually came down on the bleachers and down onto the course and uh yeah it was like this crazy windstorm and you know these guys are you know you know 75 feet in the air with these you know these narrow structures that like anything, when you build one, you know, there's a period of time while you're building it that the thing's vulnerable, you know. And uh, these guys were, thank God nobody was up and in it. And uh, thank God nobody was uh, on the tower. But, uh, yeah, it came down at a time when there wasn't a lot of work going on. But, uh, it, you know, it causes mayhem, man. You're out there doing your thing. You've got a, you got a deadline. Um, the thing that people don't understand is we have deadlines. You know, this isn't a construction project where, oh, my God, okay, well, this bridge is two weeks behind schedule. Okay, well, we'll just we got to speed it up. You know, this thing has to happen on this day at this time, regardless of what happens with the weather, regardless of what happens with nature. And, uh, yeah, man, we had some stuff crash down. And, uh, you know, it's not a lot you can do. You can watch Mother Nature and watch the weather, but it, uh, you got to be ready. That's the events business, being ready. Well, that one was particularly crazy, too, just because of the close proximity. So for those of you that don't know, the Fort Worth Stockyards is uh, a historical area in just off of downtown Fort Worth. And they actually have uh, Longhorn Steer that stay in a pen there. And it's a big tourist spot that operates year round. And what they do is they'll parade these Longhorn Steer out and they'll literally walk down the streets. And it's kind of like an old West thing. Cause back in the day, this is where everybody brought their cattle to go get sold off, to go to the meat market and whatnot. So they've kind of kept that old West bravado theme going on here. So for that thing to come down and that tower to come crashing down and that thing's a historical landmark here in the state of Texas. And it actually took out part of a historic corral fence and whatnot. And I remember flying in that night and hearing the story about that. And I just, I can't even imagine the captain's meeting that night with you guys having to talk about that fence and what ended up getting taken out and how that was going to look uh, for the city moving forward. But it's amazing that no one got hurt, that not one single person was hurt during that. The crazy part is, you know, where all the scaffolding, you know, that was a big scaffolding build, lots of massive size bleachers, all those lighting towers. It was a big scaffolding job for, you know, Mike Z and, and those guys, his crew. And 
it actually came crashing down right on top of the bleachers, which is where they had their little lunch yard and where they had some of their stuff stored underneath the bleachers. It came down right on top. Thank God nobody was there. But the crazy thing that people don't understand or know is like, you know, that that thing coming and crashing down caused a, a, a tremendous amount of additional work for those guys to try and get done in a short period of time before the event started. So a crazy little story I'll tell you is Mike Z, um, one of the you know, one of the premier scaffolding guys in this business that we've all worked with, you know, God, God knows how long. Probably one of the hardest working guys I ever met. After the scaffolding thing goes down, crushes some of the bleachers, you know, he spends the next 48 hours working nonstop. So I take a break. My guys take a break one night. We go to sleep for like two or three hours. We come back to work at like seven in the morning. And we're like, oh, we thought Mike was going to be working. And, you know, we didn't see anybody working, but I saw his truck. So I'm, I'm running around the golf cart looking for Mike, and I couldn't find him. And all of a sudden, I pull up the scrim on the front of the bleachers, and this poor guy's been working 48 hours straight. And he's taking a little nap, fell asleep underneath the bleachers, man, just worked himself <laughs> so hard, so deep, and so long that he was just chilling. He's like, I'm not going to the hotel. I'm just going to fall asleep right here, man. But that's, that's the events business, dude, working, doing whatever you have to do all night long and worry about sleeping later. Yeah, I, you just summed that up perfectly right there. I mean, situations like that, going back to something you said earlier, too, that, you know, there's no it – not, it's not like you can be like, okay, we're behind, so this is going to extend a little longer. I mean, you've got to hard out because once event day rolls around, it's got to get done and it's got to be show ready because once the gates open, that's that. It's They're not pushing show time back, so you're operating under the gun and sometimes you get in those situations and it's all hands on deck and you don't get to sleep. Sometimes your meals are limited to next to none, but uh, at the end of the day, the show must go on like the old saying goes. Yeah, that's um, it, man. Another one I was going to bring up, and this one, I, I, I kind of laugh about this, and we kind of brought this up. We talked about this when we did uh, Tess Sewell's recording. Uh, Angela's probably rolling her eyes. Jules is probably rolling her eyes right now when I bring this one up. But we did, we did this event a couple years ago that was going to be a big, uh, a big show over in Mother Russia, uh, the Russian X Challenge. And these guys had a great idea uh, in their heads that they – managed to sell to some sponsors and they were going to put on this huge action sports event that was going to have skateboarding and BMX and rally cars. And it was going to just be uh, all of this crazy stuff, this music festival on this military museum for all intents and purposes outside of Moscow. And we, a bunch of us got into country and then the bottom fell out and this poor guy lost all of his sponsors and the event didn't happen. So you and your crew, you guys were one of the first ones. You guys were the guinea pigs for all this for the most part. You guys and some of the some of the guys from uh, California Rampworks that got sent out with the mega ramp and whatnot, you guys were literally the guinea pigs. You were some of the first in the country for that whole experience. Um, I, I, I have to bring this one up just because it's such a crazy story in all of our lives. What was that like when you first put boots on the ground and ended up out there at that military museum? Well, I'll tell you what, I think this, this particular event you're talking about is one of those things where, where you everything you imagine to go wrong can possibly go wrong. Weather, structures, just a complete event collapse. But on the upside, the, the, the guy that, you know, that was putting the event on, 
it's somebody we all knew really, really well. And so I had a complete trust in the guy in the beginning. So <laughs> it was a, a little bit, a little bit uh, surreal for me. Now the problems for me started happening before I even showed up. You know, my guys got sent to a hotel. We got sent the pictures of the hotel and the hotel looked amazing. And <laughs> as my guys showed up to the hotel, they started sending me pictures of this rundown <laughs> gap of a place above a tire shop. I can I mean, see I the pictures now. Oh, I mean, and you know, Ty was sending me pictures like, dude, look, I'm I'm a team player, but this is pretty rough. <laughs> they I wasn't even there yet. I sent my guys there early, and they started texting me these pictures of this hotel, and I'm thinking to myself, I wouldn't want to sleep there. Why would I expect these guys to sleep there, you know? And that's when the phone call started. I was calling these guys like, look, dude, <laughs> I love my guys to death. They work their butts off. They cannot stay in this hotel. And they were pretty flabbergasted, too. I don't think they actually saw the hotel or went and viewed the hotel first. So, yeah, so before I showed up, that was problem number one. We got that. We got that resolved. And then, you know, we commenced to start starting to build. And uh, it just started to rain. It started to rain every couple of days, man. And, you know, dirt and water just don't mix. And uh, it was just one of those crazy, crazy things that had happened. There was a million things that happened. We got shot at by military people on the base, you know, with blanks, of course. But we didn't know that at the time. You know, all of a sudden, these guys were playing a joke on the Americans and started shooting off their guns. And we all started hitting the deck like thinking people were actually shooting at us for a brief few seconds. I mean, this was one of the craziest experiences I've ever had in my life. Um, it was just nuts. It was, yeah. um, I mean, at one point I remember us all sitting in the hotel. We had worked the event. We tried to get practice in, you know, we, we got the course set up, you know, and I had brought the BMX um, dirt course guys in. I brought um, Dave, King and those guys in from uh, Dirt Sculpt to do the do the BMX course, and you know, with all the stuff falling apart and payments not showing up, and here we are in Russia. You know, Russians and Americans, for the most part, historically, never really got along, and all this stuff starts going through your mind. And and Dave's looking at me like, dude, are we gonna get paid? And I'm like, listen, I brought you here, you're gonna get paid. I can't promise me that I'm gonna get paid. But it was hell, man. We sit in the hotel and just we get the course done and we try to go to practice. The guys show up and just one little issue. There's no gas for the dirt bikes to ride. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Man. It was freaking crazy. And then it rains. After that, it rained. We got to supposedly got the gas figured out. And then we fixed the course back up after it was all muddy again for a secondary practice and qualifying. And we told each other, look, if it rains tonight, there's nothing more that we can do. It has rained so hard and so much, there's nothing we can do. And I'm not kidding you, 45 minutes later, we're all having a beer at the bar. And I look out the window, and the water's coming off the roof of the hotel and, you know, coming off the in front of the windows so hard that you couldn't even see outside. And I just looked at each other, and I'm like, we might as well order another beer because there ain't nothing we can do. <laughs> So, yeah, from square one, bro, that was one of the most difficult, most challenging. That's something you and I and Ange and all of us are going to remember for the rest of our lives, put it that way. Oh, that is an understatement. Yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, I, we could have a whole, I could, honestly, whole podcast on just that event. I was going to say, Angela, we may have to schedule that, that one. We may have to put together a podcast with some of the key players there. We'll have to get Harper and Jewett and Sarah Kindig. We'll get Dane back on and Jules and Tess and Eric, and we can all relive that whole experience. Yeah, I think that would be I think that would be a good one, definitely. Well, I'll share, one, I'll, I'll, share one, I'll share one more good one from that particular event. It was like, you know, it got to the member, it got to the point to where um, we couldn't really do much. And then we started getting notifications that we didn't have return flights. Do you guys remember that? Oh, yeah. That's when we I. Trying to keep that one spilling out of the rumor mill world. Yeah, should we not talk about it or can I bring it up? No, no, we can now. <laughs> we're good now. Well, I just at the time we were was, trying to keep that one under wraps. Dude, that was the first time in my life, in my career, that I have started to sort of panic. Like, okay, listen, let me just do the math here, okay? I'm in Russia. I've flown here. I'm on a military base. I've just destroyed their motocross track to build a freestyle track. These guys don't know me from Adam, and I don't have a return flight home. And when the producer of this event decides that he can't pay me to put the track back like I was supposed to, I started panicking, man. I was like, is the government going to come find me? Are they going to flag my passport until I put this track back? Like, I started to flip. I started to think to myself, well, I have these seven guys here, all on my dime, all on my responsibility. And I just straight up, I called my wife and I said, babe, we need to book these guys brand new flights. I want them one-way tickets home tomorrow. And that's how it ended, man. I booked them all flights. I paid all the money and I sent my guys home. I'm like, I want you guys out of here. I don't want this thing to go down. I don't want it to go south. And it was scary, man. It was freaking scary. Yeah, that was uh, that was definitely one of the moments. I mean, I've been around. I've done plenty of things in my career, and I, things happen, and you roll with the punches, and there's been some good and some bad, some funny stories, but I, I agree with you. That was definitely the one and only time in my career where I've thought to myself, holy hell, I may not get out of here, <laughs> and that I might actually be stuck here when we got that notification that they were going to cancel everybody's tickets going home, and I thought, all right, so – these guys are out of money. And I, same thing that you did. I thought, okay, well, these guys don't really know us. And what's to say that they don't just, you know, flag your passport and you can't get out of this country because they feel that you've done them a disservice somehow or that you didn't follow through on the contract. And I was like, man, are we going to get out of here to the point where when we finally did fly out, uh, I went to the airport and I got to the gate. And when I was boarding the plane, they tore up my boarding pass and I went, Oh, son of a bitch. Like it was like five o'clock in the morning, maybe quarter to six. And then they just, they tore up my boarding pass because they had upgraded me to first class flying to England. So (laughs) at that point in time, my brain was completely shot because we had stayed up all night, not wanting to miss the shuttle or mentally preparing for the fact that they weren't going to have the shuttle there for us that was picking us up at three in the morning. But uh, yeah, so going back to that, you guys, were the you guys were literally the first ones to get out of the country and I, I 
I remember we had talked about it and I thought, all right, well, maybe they're kind of joking around. And at that point, the whole course had turned into soup. And I know that you guys had had problems with getting fuel and everything else. And there was obviously the money issue and tensions were starting to mount at that point. But I'll never forget sitting in the bar that night and having a cocktail and watching you come in. And then all of a sudden, all your guys coming downstairs with bags like, nope, we're getting on the shuttle. We're going to the airport. And I was like, oh, man, I envy you guys right now. Oh, man, I was so excited. I mean, it was crazy, dude. It was one of those things where, like like you said, we would be working one day, have, like, four, you know, two or three excavators or doing whatever we were doing. And then a guy, a Russian dude, would just come sort of running across the, you know, because, mind you, while this event's happening, there's this entire facility is under construction, right? So every square foot of this place is being built as we're, you know, doing our construction for the event as well. All of a sudden, some guy come running across the field get into one of the excavators and take it. And I'd run him down and try and speak to him in English. And obviously he didn't speak a lick of English. And I certainly didn't speak a lick of Russian. And he would just basically start yelling at me. And it turned out what he was telling me was, no, they haven't paid for it. I'm taking it back. <laughs> so there we go. Like as the day started to progress, we were like one machine down, two machines down. Today's no fuel. You know, and then one day we'd show up at the hotel and we'd be out front waiting for the shuttle and I get a phone call from one of the shuttle girls. She's crying. She'd tell me, Dane, I'm sorry, but the shuttle guy didn't get paid. We have no shuttle. <laughs> I just started to freak. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to sit here in the hotel lobby until you can find us some transportation over to the event, you know. It was gnarly, dude. It was freaking gnarly. And you guys experienced it with me and we were all together, thank God. I'm, I have to admit, I'm part of me is thankful that you guys actually came because if i was there without all you guys i'd have really been freaking out but at least i had somebody to hang out with and all of our friends to hang out with and have a beer and laugh a little bit about it you know what i mean well that's why i brought this up because like, like i said like you guys were in i mean you guys were there way before anybody else so when i got there i mean i mean i was only there i think 10 days so by the time i got there a lot had already happened. So just, you know, talking to you and talking to your guys and then talking to the guys that were there early for California ramp works that were building the mega ramp and everything else. Like they'd been there forever. And those guys had a similar situation where they were told, Hey, we're going to this one place. And they ended up in some place that was just absolutely terrible. And then they ended up finally in some weird rental house out in the middle of nowhere. But those guys, same stories. Like by the time I got there, like, we're so glad to see you. It's like, Everyone was so happy to be hanging out, having beers. Like, it's good to see a familiar face. So I can't even imagine staying there for multiple weeks. I was ready to get out of there after eight days. I can't imagine what that was like for you guys. Yeah, man, you get, it's like you get in a, you, in most places, most Red Bull events, you know, you know when the shuttle shows up and the guy's got a sign that has your name on it, it's well put together, it's well thought out. You don't have to worry about the person that's taking you up. I mean, Imagine walking out to your hotel in a, you know, in Russia somewhere, in a small town in Russia, in the middle of nowhere, and here's this guy that picks you up and, it's like, yeah, we're, well, you know, doesn't speak a lick of English, and you're going to the, you think you're going to the event, but do you, are you really going to the event? You know, you're in this van going, man, where's this guy taking us? I don't have any idea where I'm going, and uh, it's just, yeah, it was just kind of strange and crazy. But I do want to say this. Um, um, the, the, the guy that brought us all there, he is a great guy. He had some problems with people that he made some deals with, unfortunately, but if, uh, Ruslan, if you're listening, buddy, we love you. And, uh, 
we know it wasn't your fault. We know it's not something that uh, that you did, but uh, but he's a great guy, and it was unfortunate. But like we said, man, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna relive this for the rest of our lives. Yeah, and to echo what you said, I mean, not hanging this all on him. I mean, he really put his heart and soul into that, and he had sponsors, and it all just fell apart. And I mean, he was he was one of the guys that was the driving force behind that Red Bull X Fighters event that was in uh, Red Square in Moscow. I believe that was two thousand. It was two thousand ten, right? Yeah, I believe it was. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, he his heart was in the right place, and I mean, that guy suffered dramatically on the back end of that too, financially, and he was trying so hard, and you could see the stress level in that guy's face. And when I bring that up, like when we ask Tess about it, I don't do it like, oh, this was terrible. It just it's another one of those examples of like, okay, we're in this, but we're in this together, and we're still going to try to salvage this. And that's kind of why I bring that story up because even though it was bad from the beginning never once did you or anybody on your crew throw in the towel. You're like, all right, well, I'm going to ride this out because I'm in for a penny and for a pound. That's why I bring stuff like that up. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, that's the events business, right? You build like any, like any yeah. business, we all build our relationships. <clears throat> we all have relationships with people and we all have to go out on a limb and in certain occasions to trust people that, you know, they're going to fly you somewhere across the world and things are going to be good. And, I've done business with so-and-so before and things are going to be good and you have to trust it. And, uh, it can be scary at times with things like that happening, but, uh, you know, the good with the bad. I mean, come on, we've had, we've had way more good ones than we've had bad ones. All right. It all averages out in the long run. Plus Tess has a really good saying that he told me years ago that I've kind of used is that you're only as good as your last show. So in something like that, where you had to deal with adverse conditions, like, you know, if it doesn't come out right in the end, like if the event were to go off and someone saw that course, if there was a television broadcaster, one, I'd be like, oh, man, that looked terrible. They're not going to think like, oh, well, maybe you had bad equipment or maybe you didn't have fuel or maybe you were dealing with a really crummy hotel situation or, you know, no one knows what goes on behind the scenes. All they see is the finished product. So despite no matter what you get thrown at you, no matter what winds up on your plate, you're still going at it with 210 percent because at the end of the day, it's still your reputation on the line, whether it's your fault or not. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, man. That's that's the thing. It's uh, you you want to provide. You want to be you want to be the one that was res- helped be responsible for making it happen at at all costs. You know. So yeah, I mean, it's what it is. No sleep, no this, no that. You just suck it up. You do what you got to do, and uh, you know. And in this particular case, we didn't have a good outcome, but it's not because we didn't try. You know. You know, it was crazy. It was after all of that insanity and even after you guys left uh it poured down rain that saturday i think you guys ended up taking off that saturday morning it continued to rain and saturday was a complete and total washout so everyone just kind of scattered uh athletes and like the rest of the staff wise we all kind of broke off into different groups and just went sightseeing because i guess at that point we all figured like well we flew here we might as well see more than just the karaoke bar in the basement around the corner so we just kind of broke off in a little group and went sightseeing around Moscow. And then we all kind of ended up back at the hotel that night with just sort of this bewildered look. And it was sort of this last minute plan thrown together of like, all right, well maybe we can do a demo if the weather's good, just trying to salvage anything for Ruslan at that point. Cause he's still under the gun. Uh, and sure enough, yeah. man, the next morning, the weather was nice. The sun came out, the clouds parted and People actually showed up. There were not a lot, but the venue was open and there were actually people there. And we kind of did this loose sort of 
demo, if you will, on the street course, on the park course, and then the vert ramp and the mega ramp. And people walked around and it was just surreal. Like we're literally sitting on a tank, on a Russian tank, sitting on the turret, watching a mega ramp demo, eating ice cream. It was the weirdest damn thing I think I've ever experienced in my life. Yeah, but that's that's the thing. That event had all the makings of being something ridiculously spectacular, like one of the coolest things ever. Like his ideas were right, but you know, you guys, you know, all of us, all we could think about was all these people that are our fans and the sports fans and people that wanted, and all we wanted to wanted to do what we could. And that was the reason why we all stuck around, man. But that's 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 kind of really the reason why we all do this, you know? Yeah, it was just. It was surreal to see because, like, he showed up. He had his whole family there, and they just rolled up, and the extended family, and they all had ice cream and cotton candy, and they just sat in the stands like it was a packed house and watched the show, and we just kind of cycled around and moved from course to course. And we, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do we do, Jules? We ended up doing, like, three hours worth of demos out of that whole thing or something yeah. crazy? Yeah, pretty much. It ended okay, up being actually of- kind of a Sorry, I didn't mean to cut it. I was just going to say it probably felt like something we would have done when this all just started, you know, just kind of loose, no rules, like just having fun, you know? I think it was part of, it was like the last little pat on the back he was able to get. He's like, you know what, after all this, at least we made something happen. So I I wonder about that guy often, and I, I tell that story quite a bit. And honestly, if I had to go back and do it all over again, I wouldn't trade it out. I mean, it was still an experience, and I mean, we had fun. And I mean, how often you get to, I mean, that was my second time going over there, but I mean, it's Russia. Like it's, it's not like we do a ton of events over there, you know? So it's a golden opportunity to go do something in a place that a lot of people don't get to go to. Yeah, no, you're right, man. It was definitely uh, like we, like we've been saying, it's, we, we have memories now for the rest of our lives. <laughs> it's definitely, definitely some campfire stories there. Um, oh my God. <laughs> so we talked about a couple of adverse ones. Uh, I, I know this is impossible to pinpoint. Uh, so give me, give me like a top two. What are your best two events as far as just overall experience that you've worked on or a course maybe that you're most proud of in your career? Maybe I know, I know it's hard to narrow it down to one. I know that over the time of your career, you've done so many different incredible things. Uh, just give me a couple of standouts in your mind, either from the event or from the job that you guys did. Yeah, I would say from an event standpoint, like rap party, fun, crew, people, you know, outside of the actual work itself, like one of the funnest events I've ever done, I would have to say was, you know, like the original San Francisco event I did, the X Games event in San Francisco, you know meeting meeting all of the X Games crews and executives and people that were back then the executives were all hanging out with all the crew and people. They were all part of us. That was a big team and we all hung out together. And I would say that from an event standpoint and just fun in and out of the event, like that was probably one of the funnest times we've ever had. Um, the other ones in terms of events like that that was super fun was the Winter X Games event. The first few Winter X Games we did. <laughs> Um, for me, I don't get to snowboard very often. So for me to be at Mount Snow, Vermont, the first year and building the snow, uh, the dirt bike course out of snow, and then getting to take a break and go take some runs, like that, that was really cool for me. I really enjoyed that stuff. Um, so those are some of my favorites events-wise. Um, 
But like course wise, I would say my the, my my biggest achievement I would think and, and would really and something that I hang my hat on would be the first Navy that Navy Moto X World Championships that we did in Qualcomm. Uh, it was the first time we linked all those events and different tracks together, and it was a crazy you know, nightmare of uh, design and it took forever and many sleepless nights. But I think all in all, when I sat back and drove around that course or drove around the mezzanine and the golf cart and looked down, I was thinking to myself, man, that's pretty cool. We did something pretty damn cool that uh, I didn't know we were able to do. So that course design, that was probably my favorite. Um, and then, you know, like events-wise, just the early X Games, man, the crews were awesome. The people were amazing. We had so much fun. You know, Red Bull having a party at the Playboy Mansion in L.A. Like, dude, some of the craziest, raddest things that have ever happened to me happened around that time. So, yeah, I would say those most definitely. Yeah, those early days were definitely good times. And that, that Navy Moto X, for sure. And that one also falls under the guise of oppressive heat, because if I'm not mistaken, that was also record heat for that area at that time of year. And I remember everyone complaining uh, <laughs> about the heat. I remember getting text messages from people like, oh, my God, it's so hot here. Just watching people standing around with umbrellas over the athletes and whatnot while they were standing out there waiting to take their turn for their runs and whatnot. Yeah, man, it was hot. I do remember that like it was yesterday. It was so hot. And I just remember, I remember, oh, you probably remember Susan. Susan used to be the um, sort of the, um, the, the, the medical the liaison. Yeah, so she was kind of in charge of all the medical for all the staff and athletes. And she was there a long time. She was amazing. And her and I, you know, I had an issue years ago at an event. I kind of worked myself into, uh, you know, a sleep, you know, a lack of sleep sort of little coma and I had actually passed out one day at a winter X Games event and she when I came to I was on this little gurney and she was taking me over to the med tent and her and I have a long relationship after that she's always taking care of me and I remember her driving around she'd come over to us every couple hours and she'd look at me and she's like you okay I'd say yeah I'm fine she's like you drinking water and I'd say yeah and she'd go over to the cooler and she'd grab a water and make sure I was drinking it you know those are the kinds of things and those are the kind of people that made um, our initial event year is really special. People that really cared, and you know, she was like my little event mom. You know, looking out for me, taking care of me, man. It was awesome. That's another cool aspect of all this is you kind of end up with this second family, so to speak, of people that you may not see all the time, but when you do, and you just kind of pick up where you left off, whether it was four months or a year and a half, and it's just it's cool to have situations like that where. <clears throat> people are looking out for your best interest or your well-being because you know what you just said i mean that's another thing that a lot of people don't think about i mean sometimes you don't always eat the best or eat at all or sometimes your water intakes just non-existent i mean stress is a weird weird thing that just and you're working on autopilot sometimes and it creeps up on you in weird pockets like that so it's good to know that there's people out there that have your back yeah it was a really cool time she was she was one of the people that I remember the most out of all my years of X, you know, working at X games and, and doing all that. She was, uh, she was a real special one. And we worked with her on a lot of other events over the years as, as she's left X games. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's like everything, man. And you, in any business that you're involved in and anything that you do, everything is, everything really truly revolves around the relationships that you make. And, uh, 
know, having all of us been involved in events for so long, man, it's just we've met so many ridiculously awesome people, and uh, it's been a lot of fun, dude. Well, here's a little curveball question for you. So we were mentioning family. Let's uh, talk home life a little bit here. It's tough traveling around the world and going to all these events and having a family. But uh, your wife, Kimberly, also travels quite a bit and also works events. How does that work? How do you guys trade off the balance there? Because you're out producing events and building courses and whatnot. And then she's traveling around the world as a television host uh, working. Sometimes you guys are working side by side on these things. But how do you guys balance that? life uh it it was it was tough in the beginning man it was and it i would say tough and a lot more a lot easier also in the same regard if you can imagine that because you know we didn't when i before we had a daughter before we had um and before we had a child it was you know different it was just us and she could actually go to the events with me and the ones that she wasn't working um with us you know with me that she would uh you know, she would come and hang out, and it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of really good times together back then, and and then as things started getting crazy for me, and I worked at Red Bull for that long period of time, that four or five years, you know, and I was traveling more at Red Bull than I was ever traveling at the events. I mean, that was the year that I, I flew like 175,000 miles in one year. Like, I mean, I would literally be gone for two weeks, home for two days, gone for two weeks. Like, it was crazy, and I remember having this, conversations with her all the time you know when we started to talk about a family and and having kids and I told her I said look just bear with bear with me if you can I'm not this isn't going to be forever and uh here I am <laughs> 18 years late well in in May uh end of May it'll be 18 years that her and I were together and uh and we just learned to deal with it we try and not to not to take off as much as we can um you know my my wife is one of those people that hates absolutely cannot stand to be away from our daughter and uh and uh, i'm the same way but it makes it tough man it really does but you now we involve our daughter in some of these events that we can um you know now that she's old enough she's been to a few events that we do i'm sure you've seen her around and Ange and uh Ange and her have a pretty good relationship they like to hang out and stuff when she's at events so it's been cool it's been fun it's been tough at the same regards but uh but we got a lot of good experiences together. Got to travel some places together, and but it can be tough. I think my favorite yeah, definitely... was when she came to Japan and ate the uh, the what was it called? Fresh, fresh chicken. Oh yeah, that was a crazy one. Yeah, see <laughs> things like that. I just I didn't even think about it till you mentioned it. But yeah, and we got to bring my daughter and my wife. They got to um, they got to come to Japan with us for two weeks or a week, I think. And that was really fun. Yeah, we ended up going to some, the, one of the local guys took us to his friend's restaurant, remember? And they just started bringing stuff out. As we started realizing, it was just different pieces of a chicken. <laughs> started off at the feet and started off, moved on up to whatever, legs. And then next thing you know, we they're bringing out raw chicken. <laughs> and I looked at my wife and my daughter and I said, please don't eat that. And all my no, my guys were looking at me like, oh. I'm not eating raw chicken. You got to be, you know, you lost your mind. You think I'm eating raw chicken. And the, I, I, I respectfully looked at the guy and I looked at him and I said, listen, listen, I'm so sorry. But in the United States, this is raw chicken. We we don't eat raw chicken. I don't want to be rude. And he looks at me and just smiles and goes, it's not raw chicken. It's fresh. <laughs> by fresh, he meant, by fresh, he meant 
they got it out from the back of the restaurant and just, you know, they chopped the head off and it was fresh. It was straight from wherever they got the chicken. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not eating it. I love you guys, but I cannot do that to myself. Ended up like three, two of my guys got sick. We don't know if that was the case, but yeah, a couple of dudes got sick and we don't know if that was really why, but I, we all have a pretty good feeling that might've been it. Yeah, but Peyton was loving it. She was just downing it right and left. I know. She was like maybe five or seven at the time, and she's 11 now. Yeah, she's – I just – I'm watching her eat it, and I'm looking at my wife, and I'm thinking to myself, should we be doing this? And we just kind of went, well, you know, we're in Japan. They're doing it, so we should probably try it. But I still didn't try it. I have to admit I still didn't try it. But I didn't yeah. either, so. But yeah, but that was one of those cool things. I'm glad you brought it up like that, you know, that uh, we got to experience together. That was one of the funnest trips that we've had as a family, most definitely. Yeah, that is the bonus. You get to bring the family around to some pretty cool places and experience the world together. So it is tough yeah, at times, but you make do. Yeah, no, it's it's like anything, you know, like, you know, other families have different challenges and some of the challenges with our family is just being away from one another. But, you know, I, I sit down with my daughter all the time, and when she she finds out I'm leaving again, she gives me that look like, Dad, are you really leaving again? And, you know, I start kind of crying, getting teary-eyed, and I have to explain to her, like, listen, baby, I, Daddy doesn't have a 9-to-5 job. I have, a, I have a job that takes me other places, and this is how we make money, and this is how we afford this house, and this is how you have things that, the things that you have and the things that mommy and daddy have. And this is just the way it has to happen. And you know, as she's gotten older, she's understood it and it's been a little bit easier. So, and now that we get to bring her to some and she gets to be involved in some, it's been really cool. But the but biggest, we got I that think the, out of the way. What's the weirdest thing that you've ever eaten on any of your adventures or was that it? Well, I hadn't didn't actually eat it, so I can't. I probably can't include it. But uh, I don't know. I've eaten some crazy things. I'm a big sushi guy, dude. I love sushi. I've uh, I, I ate it for the first time, you know, back when I was in my 20s. And I just fell in love with it. So the Ange knows me when I go to sushi somewhere in another country, or especially when I was in Japan. The first place we went was the uh, was the uh, um, Got them drawing a blank, but down to the uh, fish market. That was the first place we went. We woke up in Japan, and that was the first place we went because there isn't anything weird enough sushi-wise or Asian cuisine that I wouldn't eat. But uh, the one thing I cannot eat that's Japanese and that's a very, very traditional thing in the Japanese culture is what they call natto, and it's a fermented soybean. So the next time you're at sushi and you really want to screw up one of your friends, just order them a natto and uh, watch the look on their face. I don't think I've ever had that experience. Jules? Oh, but um, I would have to say the pickled chicken feet was one of the weirdest things that I tried at that restaurant that we were at. Yeah, I did try that too. You're right. That was pretty damn good. Yeah, I was trying not to be rude, but that was just not not tasty at all. I'll tell you what, when I was in Prague in the Czech Republic, I sat down at a restaurant and uh, 
Merrick, the the promoter that we you know we have kind of a long relationship with, but it was one of the first times I was had ever been there. We sat down this really nice steakhouse, and he brought out raw beef. It was like, uh, you know, your typical ground beef that you and I would buy at the store. and uh, But a little more sort of, you know, pate style, a little more beat up and a little more, uh, uh, a little more, I don't know how to explain it. But, yeah, he brought it out and we all had this look on our face like, you have got to be kidding me. And he's like, no, it's a delicacy here. And he handed me a cracker and some scallions and onion and whatever and he mixed it and on a cracker man and went down the hatch and then for like two days later I, every time my stomach felt something weird with my stomach I was like oh my god is that from the meat <laughs> yeah so yeah to, to answer your question for me it was eating raw beef for the first time that that brings up good memory that was probably the thing that stumped me the most for sure <laughs> I'm trying to think i I guess my weirdest one's probably in Japan too. I, I, we had like all sorts. I, maybe China. I don't know. Who knows? We had some weird mystery meats at a dinner we went to in China one time. That could be another podcast. A lot of, a lot of times, all in itself. Here, a lot of times when we go to these things and we meet these new, you know, these new local people and they're showing us around and you know, you know how it goes. They take us to lunch or take us to dinner, and a lot of times they just order, right? <laughs> and sometimes you just. You don't even know what it is. You're just like, oh, my God, well, they eat it every day. They ordered it for me because it's something they want to share with me and or share with us. And you just throw it down. And a lot of times they actually, you know, a lot of I can't I can't imagine. I don't remember too many things that I've eaten over the years and went, man, that wasn't very good. Well, it's just kind of that weird pocket because you don't want to be rude and you don't want to disrespect their culture. <laughs> But at the same time, you're like, oh, man, am I going to pay for this for the next couple of days? Yeah, totally. Well, like I say, you, you asked the question, what what are those things? I'd say for me, it's definitely raw, eating raw beef or raw, raw hamburger, basically. And the one thing is that natto from sushi. That's two things that you put in front of me I probably would never eat again, you know. Yeah, I remember getting off the flight in Osaka and talking to Jules that night. She's like, oh, we had fresh chicken. I was like, what the hell does that mean? And then she played it out to me, and I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. And then tried to sell me on it later on. No. They tried to tell us. I think I did it in that restaurant, too. Yeah, they tried to tell us that you squeeze the lime on there and it, or the lemon on there, and it kind of like, you know, like they do in Mexican food. They they claim that it kind of. Like a ceviche. Yeah, like, like it's sort of, yeah, I wasn't buying it, dude. All I, all I kept thinking about was salmonella the whole time. Yeah, I, I think we ended up there later on that week after the athlete dinner, and they were making, was it, he had that little, like, stove thing, I don't even know what you call it, it was behind the bar, but it had, it almost looked like the, the drainage tray for a beer tap system, but it had these funky little like petrified wood logs that he would throw in there and he would grill little bits and pieces of this stuff on there and they just yeah. kept setting it down in front of us on plates but you'd bite into some of it and it was cooked on the outside but the inside was a little extra chewy it was like oh god yeah i do remember that man it's awesome i'll never forget they had this crazy miniature model of a skate park 
sitting on the lid of their toilet tank in the bathroom because the guy that owned that restaurant was a skateboarder. And it was like, that's a pretty, it's a pretty detailed skate park model right there, like right down to the little benches and the trees and everything that was on. And I was like, oh, that's pretty impressive. Well, I got a question for you then. Speaking of toilets, all the places we've been, have you ever sat down on the day and actually used it? On the bidet? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I tried it one time, dude, and it screwed me up so bad. I just couldn't handle having water between the crack of my ass. And I was like, I can't do this anymore, man. I'll never do it again. I did have to say I tried it, but it, it wasn't something I enjoyed. Yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> I, I had to give it a go the first time I ever went to Japan. I was like, all right, I'm going to try this thing out. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's uncomfortable as can be and just weird. And I was like, all right. I just felt like I had just splashed that mess all over and made made it 10 times worse. I tripped out because when, when, I, when I was in the bathroom for the first time in Japan, there's like so many buttons on the toilet. Do you remember that? There was like. Yeah, yeah. Buttons. I was thinking to myself, man, there's way too much here. I don't, I don't even want to push one of these. I don't even know what happened. It's crazy. The bathrooms that they had uh, in Dubai that where they had like the detachable shower head sprayer thing. I thought that was, I mean, I've seen some weird ones over the years, but that one definitely was the strangest of the strange to me. Well, dude, on that, on that same note, my first trip to Dubai, I was, it was, we were actually there with the X games crew in like 2010. They were actually planning to do an X or 2008 or something. Planning to do a yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we we did the site survey. We did all that. We met with some local guys, local construction guys that toured us around. So we had this big meeting. You know, several of these local guys, these local, um, they weren't Emiratis, but they were, you know, uh, you know, Arabic guys from Dubai, local guys from Dubai. And I remember we took a break at lunch and went into the bathroom. You know, we all took a break, and some of us went to the restroom. And I remember walking into the restroom and two of these guys were in there ahead of me and they had their feet in the sink. Their shoes were off and their feet were in the sink and they were washing their feet. And I had never been to Dubai and I just remember thinking to myself, what would I think if I saw two dudes with their feet in the sink in California? And I went, man, this is weird. But after a while, you're like, you know what? This is their culture. It's not my culture. It's something that, you know, that, that's a part of their religion. And, and uh, having clean feet is a way of life. And it was very strange, brother, but it was, uh, it was a sight to see. It's part of the beauty of all the travel is just kind of figuring out as you go along and seeing the weird things and just being like, okay, this may not fly at home, but here we go. Yeah. What's that saying? Different strokes, different folks, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, in light of everything that's going on right now with the world closing down, uh, especially out there in California, what have you been up to over these last couple of weeks with shelter in place? Well, I'll be honest, man. I've, uh, my daughter and I have spent a lot of time together doing a lot of cool things. And uh, you and I were talking about it kind of before we started the podcast. But uh, yeah, man, we uh, there's a little BMX track sort of in the hills that some of the local dads have been building over the years. And it's been a little hot spot for the neighborhood with everybody being locked up. And it's been fun. I've been taking the kids down there or taking my daughter down there. And uh, we've been meeting up with some of the neighbor kids. And um, yeah, man, we've just been really, you know, 
having fun together, doing some things. And, you know, um, before all this started, we were going to the skate park a lot, but, uh, obviously we can't do that anymore, but, uh, yeah, we've just been having fun, man, trying to do what we can. There's a lot of things we want to do. Um, you know, I had a buddy of mine tell me the other day, like, man, I, I, I just didn't realize how much I missed just going and having a beer and having a meal somewhere. I mean, it's, uh, it's a luxury really that we um, maybe we all take for granted. That's, you know, it's a small little thing, but it's really something that the way of life for all, all of us. And it may really hit home. And I was like, you know what? You're right, man. I, I would love to just go sit down with my wife and daughter and have a little dinner and have a drink, you know? Yeah, it's, I, I'm right there with you. It's things that were an everyday norm in our life prior to this, that you'd never realized that you took for granted. I used to complain all the time about how crowded it was at the airport sometimes and some of the people that you encounter that aren't necessarily the most travy savvy people and some of the personalities you come across. But over the last, we're on week eight of this here in Texas, and now I'm just sort of like, I've been flown. The last time I even stepped foot in an airport was March 12th, and I was supposed to fly to Milwaukee for a flat track event. And uh, I changed to a later flight because I had a feeling it was going to get canceled, and it did. Uh, but I, I haven't flown since prior to that. I haven't flown since February 10th. So it's, it's strange to not be on an airplane for this long. I mean, this hasn't happened in 20 plus years. I personally love, I, I, do too. I, don't miss, I don't miss flying, buddy. I really don't. I, I, I love to fly with my wife and daughter when we go somewhere fun or we, you know, or somewhere traveling together. But I, I just, I just, I don't enjoy being at the airport alone anymore. It's not as much fun. You know, I enjoy it with my family. So it, to me, is the flying thing's cool. I'm totally down with not having to travel, you know, the rat race of packing your bag. I mean, I, since 1999, I mean, almost my entire career, I've always had a backpack in my bedroom. I mean, everywhere I've lived, at least almost, almost 100% of the time. I'll get back from a trip. I'll take the dirty clothes out, fold up, and freshen some of the stuff I didn't wear or, you know, wash it all and put some of it back in the bag because I get so tired of packing bags, man. I just want to, uh, I want it to be easy when it's time to go somewhere, you know? Yeah, it's definitely been weird watching the luggage collect cobwebs during this time, but I, I have to agree with you. I mean, in some respects, I mean, I miss seeing people and I miss going to the events and I miss getting out there and doing things, but at the same time, I don't miss going to the airport and dealing with all that. And I've the amount of stuff that I've gotten done around the house and just helping out friends in the neighborhood. Just, I've been building furniture in my garage and just baking bread and just goofy stuff like that. And like, I just, I don't know. And life's completely different. And I'm kind of digging this new, <laughs> just kind of doing things by myself. And I do miss going out and having a dinner and having a beer or two with people in the neighborhood, but it, it's just sort of like, it's just evolved in this new thing. You do it on video chat and stuff like this, the, uh, podcast thing that we've been doing uh, yeah it, it just yeah. We, I don't know why we were talking about this earlier before we started recording i got people in the neighborhood that i've known forever that i didn't even realize lived in my neighborhood everyone's cruising around and they're jogging and walking their dogs and they're riding their bikes and it's just cool to see everybody outside and not necessarily yeah. on their i know i mean that's like it's you know I, I told I was telling my buddy this the other day. I was like, you know, I always envision myself living in a neighborhood where, where all the neighbors we all hung out all the time, and people came over and had a beer, and you know, and we're always out doing things. And 
I mean, it was a little bit like that for a long time, but now, like you said, with everybody home, people are out walking, and it's it's actually really damn cool, man. I, I agree with you. It's awesome to see everybody outside. Unfortunately, a lot of people aren't working, and that's the shitty part, but uh, but it is cool to see them out and together and, you know, families walking, and, yeah, man, it's awesome. So on that front, how's that been working out there in Southern California? You've, uh, you were – coming in actually from jo- from a job site before you got on this recording. How's, how's the work front been out there in California during all this? Um, you know, so when this thing started and, you know, the, the president and our governor, you know, have had sort of um, a lot of the, uh, you know, considered construction to be an essential, you know, essential uh, business. I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't too stressed about it in the beginning. You know, it was sort of work as usual um, for the most part, you know, obviously, you know, with the mask thing or whatever, things are a little bit different. But we were continuing to work for a while. Um, you know, I've been working on this 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 big uh, this big project. Uh, I can't say much about it, but it's it's a big TV show that we were working on, um, sort of dirt bike related. And uh, you know, it got all shut down. And then you know, my next couple jobs that I was going to start, you know, we ended up getting letters, you know, that they were being postponed until further notice and so on. So, like I said, the first two to four weeks it wasn't a big deal and then it really started to hit home you know when I woke up one day and didn't have anywhere for my guys to go to work the next day and I didn't know where they were going to go for the next you know week or two weeks or three weeks and um it's just now really for you know over the last month it's been really tough I've been trying to figure out what to do but um thankfully we saved a little bit of money and we had a bunch of projects that we were already working on and so financially we're doing okay but uh, I feel for my guys they haven't worked in in a month and a half, you know, so, but it's picking back up. I see a light at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, I'm starting, the phone's starting to ring again. And, um, but yeah, it was tough for a while. I, I didn't think it was going to affect us based on, you know, us being in the construction business, but uh, a lot of people are feeling it too, man. It's, uh, it's difficult to swallow, but it's eye opening too, because this is one of those things where, you know, it's just another, another sort of, thing you got to look at to think down the road like you know you got to be prepared for something like this where we would never have expected it but now we're all gonna have to plan for it you know in case it ever does happen again or something similar was to happen so learning experience for the most part you know yeah i feel like it's definitely going to be a learning curve for how things go moving forward in life for everything and i, I feel like the event world is going to suffer a big part of the brunt of this because as things start to come back online, I mean, we, we opened up here in Texas technically May 1st, but I, I kind of gauge it off of what's going on with mainstream sports. Um, you know, they're talking about, it was the governor of Arizona yesterday was like, Hey, we're open. You guys can come play here, but they're trying to figure out how they're going to restart the NBA and the NHL season and how they're going to do a condensed version of the, major league baseball season and what the NFL is going to look like moving forward. And I, th- I think it's going to be a while before we start seeing events like that, where you actually have fans in a stadium like that, or at a music event, which doesn't necessarily bode well for, uh, you know, the event industry as a whole. No, I mean, when they started making these, these announcements that, you know, the, the gatherings of, you know, more than 10 people and so on, that's really when it just hit home, you know, for the business that, you know, the other business that we're in, the events business that we're in for sure, dude, that's a, 
it got scary. And, you know, and talking to uh, the other subs and vendors and, you know, guys and friends that I know they're in the industry, it's, it's hit them pretty hard, you know? And uh, I can't see myself just, you know, in two weeks from now, just getting up and going to a super cross if they were to have one or, you know, I mean, too much yeah. going on in the world and too much uncertainty with what's going on with the virus and too much to still learn for everybody just to say like, all right, cool. It's open. Let's roll. They are making an announcement tomorrow though about Supercross. Fingers crossed. I know. Oh, they are? Yeah. At least bring it back it so we can watch like, it on TV. Sounds like it would be without but, fans though. They would just do it and it would just be the riders and the teams and that's that. That's fine. Put it on TV so we can have our Saturdays back. Yeah, I'm with you, Ange. I've been. Remember when I started to work on the backyard, like in December, and then we got all this rain, and then all this virus stuff has kind of slowed us down. But yeah, we were doing Saturday nights around the neighborhood. All the boys, you know, everybody's involved in the Supercross industry. Their kids used to race, or are racing, and yeah, man, Saturday night to miss it. Me too. So we'll wait and see what they have to say tomorrow. I know. I can't can't wait. Well, Angela, Jules, you got anything you want to add to this? I know we've been going for a little while. I've been talking the whole time. Huh? (laughs) Well, you've you've been extra chatty this one more so than normal. Thank you for your input. I think Angela went to sleep on us over there. <laughs> she can't get her finger off the mute button. Oh, there uh, she goes. No. She's alive. Uh, sorry. I, my, uh, see, because living in San Francisco is different. Like, we don't have any outdoor spaces. So everybody just thinks that they should open their windows and then have phone conversations. So I've literally, like, You've been hanging out with your neighbors or seeing neighbors. I've just been listening to every single one one of my neighbors' WebEx conference calls for the last, like, two months now. So everybody's (laughs) in tech around here, and everybody works, uh, you know, is is pivoting. We're pivoting our online portal. I've heard that phrase so many freaking times. So sorry, that's why I'm on mute, because everybody of my neighbors is having conference calls or whatever right now. It's got to be tough, though, living in a place that's, you know, you know, like you said, that's urban, an urban threshold like that's kind of nuts. And we live, we live a little rural just outside of LA and near Magic Mountain, and it's, you know, a little bit of open spaces. Doesn't seem as, doesn't seem as, uh, as crazy with it all, you know. Yeah, that's why it's like here in San Francisco. It's, it's, uh, there's, I mean, everybody's out walking, um, but there's a lot of people out walking and then some of the most popular places to walk are, are pretty not congested. I mean, if you were to look at it, I think like, it depends on your viewpoint. I think if you were to kind of take an overhead shot, you could see that people are spread out, but it's still a significant amount of people on a normal circumstance. You wouldn't have that many people in one area, you know, yeah. you know, hanging out or doing whatever. And, and the problem is too, is like, you know, uh, some of the parks have been closed here or shut off or, you know, you can't go to the tennis courts, can't go to the basketball courts, whatever. And, and normally those would be like utilized. So it's really just forcing people. Uh, all they can do is like go for a walk in these, you know, areas. That's all we got, you know, San Francisco is super small. So um, it's an interesting dynamic. I almost think it's, it's not working for us not having 
those spaces open to use because I think we actually need to use them just to spread people out. Yeah. You know, it's definitely a strange time. Definitely, definitely a little scary in some regards, but um, there's some good and bad in it all. Um, but yeah, no, it's crazy. I just wonder that I don't know too many people that live in like, that live in like downtown Los Angeles or in any urban areas around us. And so I just was curious. Yeah, I, I'm fortunate that I'm in an area where I've got a backyard and I've got a park down the street with a lake and I can get out and go do things and I'm not hemmed in. I can't imagine being in an urban setting situation or setting and just being stuck in an apartment. I would literally lose my marbles. I know I got to the point to where last week or a week or a week ago or something, I, I told my daughter, I'm like, we're going to go down to the river. So we just loaded up the boat and went with my dad and, you know, one or two of the family and went down the river and it was just a, just a, a huge, just relaxing getaway. It was just freaking awesome. It was hot down there, you know, no hustle and bustle. It was really bitchy, man. It was um, something that we needed, we needed to do and we had a blast doing it, but uh, I wish everybody else could experience some of the, some of that stuff. I just could imagine being locked up like that, man. It's crazy. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, th I think we've kind of run the gamut here. Um, we'll have to see what happens with events moving forward. In the meantime, uh, where can people find you on the internet, Dane? This is the time to give yourself a gratuitous plug and tell people where they can find you and your services. Well, buddy, I'll tell you what. I, I, I've had, don't laugh, but I've had, I have a Facebook account, and I've had it for a very long time. And I've posted about two things in my entire life. I really enjoy reading what other people are doing on occasion here and there, but uh, I'm not a social media guy, but I do have a website. It's uh, daneherrenindustries.com. So, uh, yeah, if you definitely need anything, you could definitely shoot me an email there. Um, but I don't do much of the social media. I'm kind of an old school guy. And, uh, and I, uh, but yeah, uh, daneherrenindustries.com is where my business is located, and you can find out just about anything you want to know. I don't blame you one bit because social media these days, all anybody does is just argue about politics. And apparently three quarters of the people on my friends list are apparently expert virologists or epidemiologists. So you're not missing anything there. I know, buddy. I wish, I mean, I, don't, I just, I, I walk around every, you know, whatever my daily, my daily routine is. And I see my guys on their cell phones nonstop and people walking around crossing the street with their heads down on their phones. And I just, I don't know, man. It's not my thing. Uh, my phone is a tool for me, and uh, I don't know, buddy. I just uh, I can't I can't bring myself to talk to my phone to send texts. I have to type them in. <laughs> so somebody's got to keep somebody's got to keep the old school alive, and I want to be responsible for it. Let's go against the grain. Let's all go get pagers. Let's do it. I'm down, dude. And then. I'm going to go get a rotary landline phone for my house and a fax machine. How about that, Jules? Will that make you happy? Totally. It'll I'm match with listen. my old clunky computer. I'm so like It's going to start with a small pager, and then in a couple of weeks, you're going to have to get a bigger one, and then a, then the cool pager is going to be a really big one. And then before you know it, the pager is going to be the size of your iPhone. It's going to be hanging off your pocket, and then it's not going to be cool again. 
So we got to think of we got to think of past that after we're done with the pager. What's next? Hmm. I'll have to work on that one. <laughs> I got you. I got you thinking, dude. See now, yeah. Now I'm gonna have to go bust out my my yellow tablet from the garage that's got all my ridiculous woodworking drawings on it and start coming up with pager ideas. Here, here I am talking smack about technology, and I'm on a podcast with some friends. <laughs> I know as we're sitting here bagging on cell phones I'm looking at mine to figure out what I got to do to the sourdough bread I'm making next I'm multitasking I'm podcasting and baking I know my friends all bust, been busting my busting me up for a long time I've had this you know old iPhone SE for a long time it was like the size of an iPhone 5 basically and I've had it forever it fits in my pocket fits in my hand and it finally took a dive on me I, I couldn't save it so I got another phone. My wife had an old phone. It's it's an old, like a seven or an eight plus. And it's just, for me, dude, it is massive. I can't, I mean, I have big hands and I can't touch all the buttons from with one hand and it's just different, but I'm getting used to it. Well, hopefully we get to do this again here in the future and we all get to play on the same playground. I don't know when that'll be. Uh, who knows, but hopefully it's sooner than later. I miss you guys. Yeah, buddy. Same here, man. And hopefully we get to make more of these memories soon. Well, I wish, I wish we could share a photo or two with some of this. So maybe that's, maybe that's something we could work on down the road. Do we have that capability? Uh, yes. The production manager will get right on it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I was just thinking, like, I've got a photo of a bunch of us sitting on that tank eating ice cream. That's what I mean. Like, you know, or or we could we could just give you a couple photos of things we want to bring up on the next podcast, and then at least people can see them before we talk about them, and then we can explain them, and people will be like, "Oh, I get it," or you know what I mean. Like, it's hard to it's that hard to tell good. it's hard to tell a story with an experience without an image, you know. No, good Put point. Up like I 10 will. Uh, yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, send them to Put me. Put up like ten images, and then people can vote. What in the hell is going on here? I want to hear the story about this. Totally. There we go. We can put up pictures of Jules' golf cart from Mexico City with all the decorations on it, and people are like, "What is that?" Yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean that the the possibilities are endless. Or my pink pedal bike in Japan. My favorite. Which is probably still there. It totally is. Yeah, or five <laughs> oversized American, five oversized American dudes on little tiny Japanese bicycles riding from the hotel to the event every day. You know you loved it. I did. It was one of the highlights. It was actually a lot of fun. I know. It was my favorite. That was actually the best riding to work every day through that damn park around Osaka Joe. Yeah. Or like a little quick little video clip of me and the guys just jumping, airing the bicycles out over the freestyle jumps and a little Japanese bicycle. <laughs> oh, man. Good times. I think we yeah, could like, talk forever. If the walls could talk, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Think of all the straight rhythm photos we could put up. Oh, God. Well, Dane, I think you're hired for ideas. Yeah, let's do it. I'm not, I might not be the techiest guy in the world, but uh, yeah, but I, I like sharing stories. I got a lot of them. I, I think we just found a creative director, Angela. Uh, oh, yeah, I don't, agree. 
So we now have the head of research and development. Congratulations, Dane. Let's do it. I'm down. We're just going to end up with a, we're going to end up just doing this like on a live Facebook thing eventually. I'm glad you guys are doing it. I want to, now I want to, now I want to get on and check the other podcast. I want to know what Tess said. Yeah, that one should be up pretty soon. So we'll let you know. We'll let you know when that one comes out and when this one comes out as well. So yeah, for sure. We're going viral. 13 countries and 2,000 downloads. Look out. What did you say the number was, Angela, before people start paying pennies for sponsorship? <laughs> yeah, I think it's like you got to hit 5,000 like downloads or something before you start getting like three cents or four cents or something like that. All right, I'm going to have to start aggressively marketing. Yeah. Hey, well, well if, if Tess or I or you or any one of us could tell some of the stories we're probably not allowed to tell, I might boost our ratings quite a bit. So, I was gonna say we could do like we could get away. We could slide. We could slide the system a little bit with some of this, maybe. Yeah, we just have to preface it before the podcast just to let the viewers know that we're gonna be, um, we're gonna be saying a few things or sharing a few things that might not be a little parental concern, but you know what I mean. <laughs> See, I'm full of ideas. I just I, once I start, I just keep spitting them out. See, why we need you? I like the photo idea. Next, oh yeah, just just a couple photos. They don't have to be fancy. You know what I mean? Like the little, like the little half-ass demo we tried. You guys tried to do in Russia. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be anything special. It's just the thought that counts, and people can understand it. You know. Might actually have video of that too. Yeah. See. We tell these stories and people are like, man, I wish I'd see what's going on. I'll post them after. Yeah, that'd be sweet. I just, I think I just made a lot more work for myself than this. <laughs> You're good. Yeah, we'll, put, we'll put Jules on it. She can't leave her apartment in Eureka anyway. I do no? not have an apartment here, but yes. Like she's sequestered. Well, when this is all over, 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 regardless of whether the events pick back up, we should have a little, uh, we should have a reunion or a, or a, I don't know what we call it, but just to get together somewhere not too far away, somewhere we can all get to and just have a good time. Yeah, that would be fun. Eric Matevich actually had a hell of an idea for that. He's trying to throw this block party up in Reno where he's going to block off the street and have this big ass barbecue kegger and all sorts of entertainment. I'm in. He's determined to be the best damn neighbor ever. So we could tie this whole thing together and we could make that an actual live broadcast, Angela, from the Matijevich block party slash event people reunion slash side hustle <laughs> culmination of the COVID-19 season. All right. Dude, dude you, know how many under, you know how many underground event celebrities you'll see at that one? <laughs> I love how we can't stop planning events, even when we're not planning events. <laughs> but we do. Hey, that's because, that's no because you gotta be a, you gotta be a problem problem solver and uh, and an idea seeker to be in the events business. You know what I mean? 
This is true. You got to be able to think on your feet. That's for damn sure. <laughs>